This episode is sponsored by Eastman. Their advanced circular recycling technologies are working towards a more circular economy by keeping millions of pounds of carpet out of landfills. To learn more and join their materials revolution, go to eastman.eco. And this episode is also sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program at prescott.edu. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, still here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the many faces of energy resilience. Can e-commerce be sustainable? The state of the sustainability profession. And what are you doing for Earth Overshoot Day? We're blowing the budget this week on 350. It's August 21st, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you? Cranky. <laughs> I, it, it, I have, I'm sorry. I have a, just a little bit of a disconnect with envisioning a cranky Heather Clancy, but mm. do tell. What is it? Is it... The pandemic and everything else, or what's, what's going on? You know, I don't know. I don't think it's any one thing. I'm just, uh, I think maybe I need a news break. Maybe, you know, even though I, I did enjoy the uh, convention this week, it did. there were some very uplifting speeches, and, and I did get jazzed about that. But, you know, then I read other newspapers, and I, I just, I don't know. I just, I think it's just everything. I need a break existential malaise you're taking yes. a break but not till september not for a couple mm. more weeks so mm-hmm. hang yeah. in there my friend yes thank you i mean my garden does p- provide great great joy and and i read a great piece on the sort of psychological effects of that so i i think maybe i'll be doing a lot of gardening in a couple of weeks uh, to get my my brain back to the place it should be but yeah i'm just cranky what about you uh yeah i mean not cranky i'm just sort of a little bit of an a little bit of an existential malaise i'm just i'm I'm, i've been doing okay for five months now and i'm sort of hitting a wall i think a lot of people are Uh, but one of my realizations is that i'm really tired of my habits i mean i realized that i'm much more of a creature of habit than i ever thought and um, and I also realized that those habits, you know, the way things I do in the morning, I get up and read the paper and drink coffee, blah, 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 and I hit my desk and all this stuff and all the way through bedtime are really, when I travel, really comforting and grounding. And when I travel a lot, which I do sometimes of the year, they're almost sacred. I just, you know, when I'm home, those are just sacred moments. But 
now it's all habits all the time and I'm kind of over them. Um, I need some, you know, trying to figure out how to shake it up a little bit, but mm. nothing's really, you know, what am I going to take a shower after my coffee? I don't know. It's not going <laughs> to excite me so much. <laughs> you need anyway. new sacred moments. New sacred moments. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we've got a piece coming up in a, a week or so from uh, uh, a great new ed- uh, columnist, uh, Chris Gaither, who writes the Sustainable You column about, you know, personal well-being and balance and and all of that for all of us in sustainability. And, and, and he, it's a great piece about him discovering stuff and about himself in the quiet and a went up in Northern California, the Trinity Alps and hiking and sort of isolated with his girlfriend and, and just what happens when we're in quiet. And I guess for all of the sheltering in place or actually this week in the Bay area, sweltering in place, um, you know, we're not getting enough of that quiet. So we need more mm-hmm. of that. But anyway, yeah. enough about us. We're tr- Let's We're trying to do to- too much. Don't try to do too much. That's the, that's the message here. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually try to do nothing at all, which is, you know, I think hard for probably you and me, um, but you know, this is the time to learn how to do new things. So let's do an old thing, specifically the week in review. I want to start with a great piece that a really important topic from one of our contributors who I've been really enjoying a lot, uh, Michelle Moore, who runs a CEO of Groundswell, a nonprofit, looking at uh, equity and energy. Michelle is also a former White House official, uh, ran, uh, I think this was the White House Sustainability Office under President Obama. Um, and she's uh, wrote a piece about equity and energy and things that, uh, particularly as we get to energy efficiency, renewable energy, as we often know and have written about in the past, um, a lot of this has not been available to uh, black and brown communities. And how do we make this more equitable, not just renewable energy, but energy systems in general, and start to pay more attention in not just the inner cities, but in the rural areas not just black and brown people, but poor white people as well. Just a, a thoughtful piece about the role of, of uh, communities and large corporate energy buyers and cities, municipalities. Um, and uh, I think it's, this is just a topic that isn't getting enough attention. And as renewable energy and climate change uh, become a growing part of the conversation, finally in the United States, as it was Wednesday night at the at the Democratic convention, we just need to marry that with the social justice movement and bring those together because I think there's a lot of solutions there and a lot of opportunities. Well, you mentioned loving Michelle's voice, and I, I have to say I chuckle every time I read it her in her lead. I don't know about all, you all, but I was raised in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church, and my Revelations bingo <laughs> card is just about full. And I just I I've always appreciated Michelle's perspective. Um, Groundswell is a, a tremendously helpful and valuable organization. And uh, I love a couple of her specific tips in, in this article. Um, I, I hadn't thought of it this way because because so many times, you know, big companies are like, well, how can I help? You know, well, I don't understand. And she's got some really specific examples of, of that here. Um, you know, like if you t- think about the resilience investments that big companies are making, I know for example, Kaiser Permanente, that out where you are, um, has a as a microgrid, and and talking about using some of these investments as a resource for the community, 
um, and rethinking the model for who that's available to and and so forth. And she doesn't talk about that that particular um, example in her in her column. However, if you think about it, many companies are doing things like that. And if you just if they just extended it out to the community where they were living, it could have such a uh, a more impactful uh, meaning to the community where they, they are based. And also uh, another thing, which I hadn't really thought about, but uh, if you think about all the investments that, that higher education, universities, colleges are making in renewable energy, again, a great opportunity to extend that service to the community and to the neighborhoods and historically um, unserved neighborhoods near, nearby. So, really And the resilience extends to... Uh, natural disasters and other ex- extreme weather events, things like that, where the power goes out. And uh, as, as always, the hardest hit are off in the frontline communities. And so how do we get them back up and running? I know you were not a frontline community, Heather, but you were uh, out of power for you know more than a couple days, I think, uh, during the, the storm that came through uh, your area, New Jersey. Uh, but you had means and you, you got through it and lost internet connection, but it probably, you know, I don't know how much you suffered, but a lot of people suffer a lot when these things happen. They're, you know, literally uh, in the dark and and without uh, air conditioning during uh, hot, humid times and often don't have access to medical care and things like that. So this is a really important issue. And I think it's, uh, I love that she's bringing this up. I love that we're spending more time as a company covering these kinds of issues. But Let's switch from energy to water. And another one of our great regular contributors, Will Sarney, who's the founder and CEO of Water Foundry, talks about uh, water handprint as opposed to footprint. Now, I do, do you know about handprints, Heather? Is that, is that a thing that you... Well, I, had, I hadn't really thought about um, the concept until I was reading his column. And then I, I did think about some other pieces I had read. And, I, you know, it's frankly... The idea, instead of leaving a trace, that you're that you're really assisting with something, that you're using your means to to touch and to do better, as far as to to to, to impact. You know what I'm saying? So that that's the way I think about it. But, yeah, it's um, about we don't talk the, about it that much. Yeah. Yeah, it's about this sort of move to how do you? It's not about just doing less bad as a company. It's about how do you become restorative and regenerative and and net positive. Uh, it, the idea of handprint really came out of uh, Harvard School of Public Health. There's something called SHINE, the Sustainability and Health Initiative for a Net Positive Enterprise run by a guy called Gregory Norris. And, uh, and Greg has really been talking about this for quite a number of years, probably close to 10 at this point. But it started off with, with, with carbon and energy. Uh, but the handprint is the positive change that, that uh, as opposed to the footprint, which is the, the negative impacts. And so Will is writing about this as it relates to water and, and how do you think about uh, water handprint? Um, and uh, and you know, it, it, he talks about the fact that it's very different from energy and carbon because uh, water is so local and also temporal at certain times a year, certain years, different cycles. And what, ha- what what's happening where you are is very different from what's happening where I am almost 3,000 miles away. And so you have to think about it differently. But the the bigger point here is that we talk about water stewardship. Traditionally, has been about investments to mitigate water-related risks. 
rather than an opportunity to grow business while simultaneously improving the well-being of communities and the environment. I'm quoting from his piece. Um, he says, he wrote, uh, ultimately, corporations spend more time and allocate greater resources on growth strategies versus risk mitigation strategies. I mean, this goes to this whole theme that um, so much of what we write and talk about, Heather, it's about, you know, how does this become an opportunity, sustainability in general become an opportunity for business and not just a cost. Um, and so I, I love, again, reframing this idea, uh, not just from footprint to handprint, but how water is, has its own special case. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, that is informing his thinking here, too, is he has been spending a lot of time on digital technologies that help address water issues. And I think that this the, those interests are intersecting now, right? So if you think about all of the amazing capabilities that artificial intelligence and automation and sensors and probably even satellites, right, for flood risks and so forth, imagery, that technology and the services behind it is really hitting a tipping point. And that also really does enable the same thing to happen in the water space. So um, not, it's not just forests that could benefit from all of these uh, amazing opportunities, but but the water uh, that surrounds us, uh, not just freshwater, but also oceans. So yeah, I think it's a, uh, he's been thinking about this for a long time, because just based on my conversations with him in the past, but I love just the different way he's talking about it now. And, and hopefully it's a, a tipping point. So Joel, you wrote something this week that I really appreciated because uh, I got excited about this particular event last year. And um, I think I was being a little Pollyannish and naive, but uh, when the business roundtable made its statement on the purpose of a corporation last year, I got really excited because I thought, wow, the CEOs finally get it. Um, but a year later, you're, you're kind of skeptical about just how much impact um, this, this statement really has had and will have. So why don't you tell me what, what you were thinking when you, you were cranky maybe when you were writing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I did not get all that excited a year ago when the Business Roundtable, which is this membership group of about 200 CEOs from US, large U.S. corporations, issued and updated, actually, its statement on the purpose of a corporation and, and talked about the need for a share, uh, get away from the shareholder-centric mission that's been the go-to for uh, 50 years, really, to uh, a fundamental commitment to all stakeholders, um, employees and, and communities and the environment and such. This is not new thinking, and it wasn't new thinking a year ago. Um, I don't think I wrote about it a year ago, uh, but uh, I oh, dug no. up a piece. Yeah, I don't think you did either. Yeah, yeah. dug yeah. up a piece that that uh, a friend of ours, Kevin Moss, who uh, formerly a corporate sustainability uh, executive uh, at, at British Telecom BT, and, and for the last few years at the uh, World Resources Institute, that he wrote three days later, and um, you know he points out that. Uh, that the statement of purpose is really the corporate social responsibility plan of an earlier generation, and that a lot of the companies and the CEOs prominently featured, IBM, GM, J.P. Morgan Chase, have been talking about these commitments for for a decade. In fact, the Business Roundtable itself had released a report 10 years earlier, 11 years ago now, um, called in, in Enhancing Our Commitment to a Sustainable Future. Um, and, and, and year after year, 
Kevin wrote a year ago, uh, the roundtable's members and CEOs have made statements about their sustainability accomplishments and what they've done to meet the needs of a wide range of stakeholders, from employees to customers to suppliers. Anyway, that's it was sort of old news in that regard. And I sort of looked at it with a little bit of an eye roll. And But anyway, I looked at it a year later and said, well, okay, maybe stuff's happened. Maybe, you know, it's making a difference. And I looked around and said, nah, not so much, that <laughs> this really hasn't changed anything. I had I didn't see anything this week uh, on the one-year anniversary that says, you know, there's no progress report or no announcements or anything that you might associate with, uh, you know, some anniversary of a, of a landmark uh announcement so it was just it was kind of a a nothing burger here and <laughs> um, and and uh, and, uh, and to the extent that it that it all became a fig leaf for companies to say oh look at us we're changing our our mindset and all of these things not so much it's it, it's really you know companies are doing a lot um but it's the same reason they've been doing a lot for a while which is that you know these are good for everybody, but it's not because they've totally shifted their view on what's the purpose of a corporation. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the 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 reminder of the legal the legal requirements of a corporation, right? So most of them are registered in Delaware. Um, they're legally required to worry about shareholders first. If their shareholders aren't enlightened, then they're really not going to make the kind of progress we'd like to see. So it, I love how you ended the piece, which is, hey, world, <laughs> community out there, you stakeholders, you know, let's talk about the stakeholders that care about these companies. It's it's um, the responsibility, I guess, kind of goes back on us to keep our voices asking for change, Dem- actually not even asking, demanding change in so many different ways. And I think um, uh, it just sort of heightens the need for, us to keep it up and and to not to not be silent on so many issues. Yeah, so. I mean we we need to step into our roles as customers, employees, suppliers, community members, and shareholders, um, and 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 speak up, act up, whatever it takes. And we're seeing that now with the social justice, racial equity issues. People got justifiably outraged, and and companies have been responding, and you know. Reasonable minds can argue about whether it's enough or too little, too late, or, or, or the state of that. But at least it got companies' attention. That that was a very dramatic moment. So, you know, how do we get companies' attention around these things? Um, and so it's not just shareholders first, and that shareholders realize that their their investments are at risk, profits are at risk, uh, the long term viability is at risk, the companies themselves are at risk. And so that's where we come in uh, by, you know, whether it's reputationally or economically or whatever it takes uh, to influence companies to, to do the right thing. I'm Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor at GreenBiz. In late July, the Environmental Defense Fund released a report called The Roadmap to Sustainable E-Commerce. It outlines how the world's biggest e-commerce retailers like Amazon, eBay, and Walmart can use their influence to benefit the environment and their bottom lines. I spoke with Boma Brown-West, Senior Manager at EDF Plus Business at the Environmental Defense Fund, who authored the report. 
Here she is telling me about the purpose of the report and some high-level takeaways. It is calling on major e-commerce retailers to take responsibility for the impact that um, the products on their platforms have on the environment and on human health. So we felt that this was, especially at this time, this was important to really bring um, this issue up. A lot of attention has been put in the e-commerce. You know, when we look at e-commerce and um, its environmental footprint, um, a lot of attention has been put on the cost of delivery, the environmental cost of delivery and packaging, which are definitely very important issues um, as, as we see, you know, even across the nation today. Um, however, another um, bigger chunk of their environmental footprint is around the products that are part of their product assortment online. And so we want to call attention to how the, the biggest environmental impact and the biggest health impact of products is really due to the products themselves and the creation of the products, um, the creation and the use of the products. So as part of this report in the roadmap, we call on major e-commerce retailers to recognize this, but we also put out um, seven steps around things that they can do today to start showing their leadership when it comes to driving for safer and driving for more sustainable products on their website. Those steps include things like assessing your chemical and carbon footprints, setting ambitious goals to address your footprints, and engaging product suppliers and sellers to meet your goals. Later on in our conversation, we spoke about the timing of the report and the importance of transparency from companies. In addition to the report, EDF Plus Business launched Sustainabuy, a prototype of the e-commerce website that shows how a company can display information about a product's climate and chemical footprint. Here's Boma again. I think some people might wonder, why now? Why are we talking about this now? And interestingly enough, sustainable products in the time period of between 2015 and 2019, they made up over half of the growth in consumer products and the sale of consumer products. And despite the COVID-19 pandemic, this growth is still continuing. And so what that tells us is that the desire for sustainable products is still there and it continues to grow among shoppers. So that is, you know, that's part of why businesses should, you know, take this opportunity to increase their transparency about this, set goals for their companies and relate it back to product offerings and how they're communicating this to consumers. And then, uh, you know, the, the other thing that I would say too is that we show a vision where you can see certifications, you can see an overall score, you can get um, some text information about the importance of sustainable products and such. And um, what's critical there is we're really trying to improve entire product assortments. And so we see that if there is this greater move towards transparency about the impact of products, then that could help accelerate the transition of the marketplace to safer products, to more sustainable products. And so transparency really is to us as important as setting those ambitious goals and um, trying to execute on them internally. Bowman noted that since releasing the report, EDF Plus Business has already started having conversations with some e-commerce retailers, specifically about how they can improve their transparency, which is key for accountability of their goals. 
For Green Biz, I'm Deanna Anderson. This Saturday, August 22nd, marks Earth Overshoot Day, defined as the point at which humanity has used nature's resource budget for the entire year. This milestone actually comes more than three weeks later than last year, in large part because of decreases in wood harvest and fossil fuels combustion related to the pandemic. What can companies learn about this moment that we might apply to future years? What steps can they take during the economic recovery and reopening process to move Earth Overshoot Day earlier each year rather than later? Energy management and building automation company Schneider Electric this month teamed up with the Global Footprint Network to release a guide on how businesses can better support the concept of one planet prosperity. Joining me to chat about this are Kevin Self, Senior Vice President of Strategy, Business Development and Government Relations at Schneider Electric, and Matisse Walkernagel, founder and president of Global Footprint Network. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So Matisse, I'd like to start with you. How does the concept of One Planet Prosperity dovetail with the goals of the Paris Agreement? It very much builds on the Paris Agreement that tells us that the goal would be never to exceed two degrees Celsius. And there are two main additions. One is that One Planet Prosperity recognizes that is not just CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, but it's the entire planet. If we move, as we move out of carbon emissions, we don't want to put the pressure on the rest of the planet. So we need to look at the entire budget of the planet. The second part where it adds something maybe even more important, because when we say climate agreement, it sounds like we have to have an agreement first before we act. What we show in this new ebook on the strategy for one planet prosperity is that it's in the self-interest of every country city or company to recognize the context we are in because if you're not prepared you're not prepared so recognizing the one planet context in which we live is becoming a key element for successful business strategies so kevin what behavior changes related to the pandemic do you think have contributed to the shift to an earlier day for this year yeah, well, as we're all living through the result of COVID-19 through the rest of 2020, and we'll see how much into 2021, obviously many people working from their from where they live. And so people are traveling much less. Uh, construction has been decreased quite a bit in the U.S. on a state-by-state basis. It's, it's open now, but I think people have also taken greater sense of what they use themselves, what resources they use and how they may be able to get by with using less in the future. I, uh, to, to Matisse's comments, the, the Paris Agreement and this are intimately linked with each other. Um, and I think uh, we as uh, inhabitants of this earth uh, realize that what's happening across the globe has definite impact on us. And we need to think more of glo- as global citizens than as a resident of your small town or village or state. So Matisse, I'm just curious, you know, a lot of this could be just due to the fact that we're in this moment. How do we make sure that we continue this behavior? Yeah, actually, what we're saying is we need to move to date. And that's not just because it's nice or noble, it's necessary. 
So even for cities, it's not about how do we save the planet, it's about how do we save ourselves? How do we make sure our city, our country, our company is able to operate in this new context? And I think COVID is kind of waking us up and saying, wow, we are all one biology, we're, we're, we're totally connected. So, so in terms of moving the date, eventually humanity will move out of overshoot. The question is only whether we do it by disaster or by design. So we have been forced into a reduction of resource demand. It wasn't because of our great wisdom. And, and that's exactly what we try to avoid. We're trying to find out, like, how can we get there on the most comfortable possible path? That's why we need foresight and innovation. And that's why we've partnered up with Schneider Electric, because that company is focusing exactly on that problem. How do we decarbonize even faster? We did a, a little study with Schneider Electric. We say, if Schneider Electric's technology that is focusing on decarbonization and digitalization would be applied worldwide. If everybody used these technologies with no increase in cost, increase in comfort, you know, so more stability, more robustness, we could move the date 21 days and we would be better off. So we can move the date in ways that is much more comfortable. We stand for design, not disaster. So Kevin, you know, what can we learn from this? What, what, what uh, advice would you give to the corporate energy community in particular about how to to get to get this from a you know like a accidental habit into a, a real real by design strategy sure well well i think what this is uh forcing us to do is to give greater thought to what you just brought up heather is you know the use of energy and and typically a, a lot of people hadn't thought about it too much but energy efficiency is one of the greatest tools in our tool belt that that we can use and uh, it hasn't been used as much as it should be. Um, I'm actually on the board of an organization called the Alliance to Save Energy here in the U.S. that for 44 years has really been trying to drive federal policy on energy efficiency, referred to as the megawatt. Not as sexy, right, as a windmill or a solar panel. It's hard to get your picture taken next to, I guess, nothing. But, but it's this how do you drive greater awareness that instead of just focusing on the supply side, how to first focus on the demand side, taking a step back, really realizing what do you need from an HVAC, from lighting, from uh, temperature, uh, especially in buildings for the foreseeable future that are gonna be much less occupied tomorrow than they were yesterday, and how to ensure that you're matching the energy usage with the very specific need, and to Matthias's point, the focus on digitization, and the fact that you can then link energy to individuals and individual usage, uh, we believe is gonna help drive uh, the date further back towards the end of the year. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go to both of you for advice in a moment, but I wanna ask one follow-up, Kevin, um, especially as many companies are, are not necessarily planning to reopen their offices in their entirety in the future, um, but maybe maintaining people at home. Are, are, have you given any thought or are you having dialogues with your customers about how they help their home based employees get a better grip on this? We are. Actually, it's a great segue. Uh, we, a couple of years ago, invested in a company called Sense. And what it does is it allows you to see exactly how much electricity you're using within your home. Uh, most people give little thought to this. Uh, but it was interesting. They did a study a couple of years ago. They sent out 100 units to 100 residents, didn't give them any information of what to do. But just by people having awareness that these devices were now in, they reduce their electricity consumption 8%. So if that, and you're not really telling it to take control, you're just making people more aware. And once again, with what we're all living through with COVID, 
my belief is we've all become much more aware of our environment and what we need to do as stewards to ensure that we can continue to move this date backwards towards the end of the year. So coming to you now for advice, um, what specific measures can building managers and facility managers and just companies in general take as they reopen to help push next year's date back? So I'll start with you, Matisse. Often we are asked, what's kind of the most single important thing to do? And then we often say the most important thing is to sleep enough because then you have a clear brain to make good decisions because if our decisions are not consistent with our vision, we're not going to get there. So it's not about giving people homework or you have to do this or that. But I think recognizing that we are in the game, that it's about us, that somehow, like, if, if we make our operations much more resource efficient, that's investing in our own ability to operate in the future. So the question is not what should we do, what do we want to do, and why actually if the efficiency route or, or, or decarbonizing is one of the biggest opportunities to maintain, safeguard our assets, our, the value of our assets. And I think that's the interesting thing about Schneider Electric. So as it worked with its clients, the goal is to make them stronger and to increase the value of their assets. So it's a total win-win. Yeah. And to follow on uh, Matthias's point, you know, the first thing you need to do is understand what is your usage today? You know, what is your, what is your footprint? How much energy are you using? We actually have a great story of our uh, one of our manufacturing facilities in Lexington, Kentucky. At the spry age of 63 years old, we've turned it into a smart factory. We've actually driven energy savings of 3.5% a year because we focused on it. We understood what the issues were. And we and various partners have tools and technologies that can assist them in becoming much more efficient. This energy efficiency aspect, not talked about as much as it should be, but it is dollars waiting to be saved. We'll thank both of you for joining us on Green Biz 350 today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. You just heard from Kevin Self with Schneider Electric and Matisse Walker-Nagel with Global Footprint Network. It's time for a midsummer check-in from my friend John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst at Green Biz Group, who runs the Green Biz Executive Network, our membership group of sustainability executives from big companies. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. So you've been out talking to companies all summer, as you do all year long. What's going on in sustainability inside the big companies you know during this most unusual summer? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot is going on. I mean, I think we talked last time about uh, you know people are as busy as they've ever been. Although what they're working on is different than what they had planned, so there's there's a lot of work around goal setting, maybe establishing metrics. But I think one of the things that that has been a surprise for some of the teams I talk with, especially from B two B companies, is how much their salespeople are asking for information around sustainability, both about the company and their products. So do these sustainability execs have things, tools, resources to offer them? You know, they're having to uh, pedal very fast to catch up. But, uh, you know, I think the encouraging thing is, is that they are seeing these salespeople come to them because the sales folks are trying to find another way to talk to their customers and it's 
you know, speeds and feeds isn't good enough. They need another story to sort of engage and, and talk more about the company. I mean, I don't think decisions are being made because of the sustainability story, but it, you know, I think it's still price and quality and non-time delivery, but uh, I do think that it gives the, the sales organization and the marketing organization a different entryway into um, their customers. This is kind of a big deal. Because sustainability was always seen as a cost center. It was never connected to revenue, let alone to direct, uh, directly to customers. Maybe they were called upon to fill out, help fill out a survey or some uh, uh, supplier information that, that a p- potential or current customer was asking. But this feels significant. Yeah, it's, it's very different. And you and I have talked about this, that this is a different time than 2008, 2009 as people really try work to embed sustainability across the organization and get people to understand the systems thinking that's that's necessary for this so one of the things that i'm really excited about is our um, professional certification program that we've been working on with Holeworks. uh yeah i mean distance learning would be the way to do this uh, tell the audience a little bit more about what that program is yeah, this is a 10-week certification program that has sort of upfront education models the, the first couple weeks just to get everyone on the same page. But then there's a simulation, and this is the, the really cool part of this, is there's a simulation where cohorts of 10 people from around the globe can get together and, and play different roles, be actors in a supply chain for a forced products company, so you may at one point be the NGO or the VP of sales and it's asynchronous. So you don't have to all be on at the same time, but you make decisions and then a simulation is run and there's all sorts of feedback on the social, environmental and economic impacts of your decisions. And so it really helps people understand that whole systems approach. And there's, experts, professors, as you will, instructors who are giving feedback? Yeah, we have, we have a stellar cast of both uh, instructors as well as people who have spent their careers in sustainability who act as guides along this path. Launching in September with our first set of cohorts and again later in the year. Uh, we'll put a link to that uh, on the webpage for this week's episode. So is this I would imagine as part of a growing trend, I mean, distance learning, as I said before, has to be a big part of the equation now. Are you seeing a lot of these kinds of things? We're not seeing a, a lot of them. I mean, they're, uh, I've been talking to people about where they're getting their information and you know, there aren't many opportunities like this. There, there's the MBA program that you can go for, which is extensive and expensive. Um, but actually, the thing that most people have been telling me is that they're very thankful for our conferences so that they can come and get deep dives into, into various information, whether it's, you know, with circularity or verge, you know, the different topics get covered. So it's, it's been pretty gratifying to hear how much uh, people miss our conferences in person and are looking forward to them uh, virtually. I miss them terribly. Uh, when we talked uh, early, several months ago, you uh, mentioned that this is maybe one of the first times that 
sustainability executives are not being laid off and jettisoned as, when times are tough and that there had been relatively few, uh, little, relatively little carnage, I guess, uh, among in the sustainability profession in corporate America, at least. Is, has that held as we've continued into this pandemic and recession, borderline depression? Is that still going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's still a couple industries that are pretty devastated, right? Airlines, I mean, for example. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've had some conversations with folks in this past week where their teams have been brought back off of furlough. They're back to, you know, at least close to full strength. And I think the other thing that I found really fascinating is people are getting hired. You know, we've seen, you know, some, some CSO roles open and people get those jobs and they've done the whole thing through Zoom. Right. I mean, the initial application, the interviews, the onboarding, and they haven't had to relocate because everybody's still at home. Yeah. Uh, one of our friends, uh, Jeff Hogue, is moving over from CNA in Europe to come to Levi Strauss and, um, and several others, uh, big companies that are now, uh, what are some of the other big, big changes you saw that are, that are public at least? Let's see. I think Ying Yu went from Bose over to Prologis. You know, I think it may have been before COVID, Michael Kabori leaving Levi's and going up to Starbucks. And, uh, you know, Jenny uh, McCulloch, now the vice president of sustainability at McDonald's. So lots of, lots of moves going on and, and still a great time to be a sustainability professional. So I was going to ask you if there are any silver linings, would that be it? Or are there, are there any other silver linings, things that, uh, positive developments that might not have happened um, if it were not for this moment? I think we're seeing a different, you know, I, I don't know that I have deep data on this, but we're seeing a different level of commitment, I think, out there. We're seeing some focus on uh, you know, net zero or carbon neutrality that I think is really, you know, progressing faster than I might have expected it to. Um, and some interesting projects that, you know, again, Chatham House rule, but around taking a, a, a total 360 degree view of how the sustainability impacts a business and how to measure that, not just environmentally, but socially. As always, great to check in with you and get the optimistic view that things are tough out there, but there's some good good stuff going on in the world of sustainable business. John Davies, Vice President, Senior Analyst at GreenBiz Group. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. One of those events, Circularity 20, is coming up next week. Uh, please tune into that Tuesday through Thursday. We'll be doing this amazing uh, three-day virtual event, and I hope you tune in and enjoy that. While you're on our site, check out our six free e-newsletters, including the one by Heather and one by myself. And you can go to greenbiz.com newsletters and find out more about them. Write to us. We always love your comments, questions, and tips. Send us those at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
This episode is sponsored by Eastman. Their advanced circular recycling technologies are working towards a more circular economy by keeping millions of pounds of carpet out of landfills. To learn more and join their materials revolution, go to eastman.eco. And this episode is also sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program at prescott.edu.